I want to tell you a story about a church. It's called Clapham Church. It's in the city of London. The church is over 200 years old. It was founded in the mid-1700s, and it was just, it's a, it was, it's a local Anglican parish. Originally, it was about three miles outside of the city of London, but at this point, Clapham is part of the greater London metropolitan area and, and within, actually, the city of London. The Clapham Church was substantially involved, if not uniquely involved, in the following things. The abolishment of slavery and the slave trade within British-ruled territories long before the U.S. emancipation of slaves, and this is an effort that took over 40 years. So slavery was outlawed in um, England long before America, um, but because of British, the British Empire was so extensive throughout the world, um, slavery and the slave trade was still very vibrant in the early 1800s. And this, the people of this church, without them, that effort would not have been accomplished. They were one of the earliest promoters of public education, which initially was opposed by the aristocracy of England and the merchant class because of the perceived connection between education and rebellion. At the time, the French Revolution had started and was going on, and they saw what happened in their minds. It educated people were behind the French Revolution and the rebellion. And if you're familiar with the French Revolution, um, it lasted a long time. And it was very violent in some episodes. And the, the, the leadership, the aristocracy and the merchant classes of England saw that um, education was connected to rebellion, so if we keep the peasants and the masses stupid, uh, we won't have any rebellion in this country. And so this, this group was a significant press towards the formation of, of Sunday schools, which led to public education, as we know it. They formed the Bible Society. So there's a one in North America, there's one in the UK, so they formed the, the UK Bible Society, still in existence, has distributed millions of Bibles in hundreds of languages over its 200-year history. They advocated for the poor who were unjustly penalized for their poverty through harsh debt law. They were engaged in ending the harsh treatment of animal, animals through gaming participated in many other personal and united causes to address health, poverty, and other aid efforts locally and abroad. Many of them were very wealthy, um, but by the end of their lives had given most of what they had in terms of assets away to the meeting of the social causes that they, that they supported. Now, who were these people? The one of, them, one of them that I know that probably most of you have heard about is William Wilberforce. A recent convert in Jesus Christ that became motivated to, to end the oppression of slavery and the slave trade. It is said that William Wilberforce was a natural leader with a natural eloquence, this is a quote, that Prime Minister Pitt declared to be the greatest he ever knew, with a voice that in the melodious beauty of its tones has seldom been surpassed in the history of Parliament. He was known for his personality, wit, friendship, fidelity, conviction, public standards, 
the authentic keeper of the nation's conscience, a passion to end oppression, a genuine love for people. He had a broad mind, extensive sympathy. But with all of these abilities, and you, you, you probably know somebody like this. Just, they just kind of exude leadership, and people want to follow them. His first effort in presenting a bill to Parliament to end slavery had zero results. And he began to realize that this was going to take a team. And so over the next 40 years, people from this church, people connected to other churches by relationship, would come actually to this city of Clapham join this church, join this group of people, and they mobilized themselves for the end of slavery. A man named Granville Sharp was one of them. He learned Hebrew so that he could confute a Jew. He learned Greek in order to refute a, a, a New Testament cult friend of his. He made original contributions to the understanding of both languages in this effort. In, in an opposition case, so he was a lawyer, in an opposition case, excuse me, in opposition to three previous cases, so he was fighting against kind of case law at the time in an effort to demonstrate that the law required any slave of anyone that ever stepped foot onto English soil automatically became free. So he fought and he fought and he fought this, demonstrating from the law and going against established precedent that that was indeed the case, and he eventually won after two years of research and effort in the courts, which released 14,000 slaves that were in the UK at the time. A man named Thomas Clarkson would write 16 to 20 pages, handwritten, daily for a month, reporting, from the slave, reporting on the slave trade from Paris. Some of these men and women would literally just spend their time researching evidence of what the slave trade was doing. They would kind of try to get themselves on board of, of slave trade ships and boats so they could document and have evidence. And so they would give all of this evidence and research to William Wilberforce so that when he was in Parliament, he could say, hey, here's what has happened. Because he found that the first time he went in, just with the sheer power of argument and his own eloquence, it got nowhere. So for years, many of these people brought him research firsthand from all over the world um, in order to, to fight this argument. One of these men, Thomas Clarkson, and there's actually a little conversation on the internet, was Thomas Clarkson of the UK related to the current Jeremy Clarkson. If you're a fan of Top Gear or Grand Tour, Jeremy Clarkson, he's kind of a joke. Anyway, this one man looked, he was on search of evidence. He went and looked in the ports of England at 317 boats until he found the one sailor that he was looking for that knew he had this piece of evidence that, to secure this testimony in Parliament. A man named Zachary Mokhaley. He would start writing at 4 a.m., again providing essential research needed for the arguments in Parliament. He had a photographic memory and he would read the minutes of Parliament after dinner each night. People knew him to be the most dangerous foe that slavery had. There's a woman named Mrs. Hannah Moore. She established Sunday schools for the poor and uneducated around London that would provide Bible education 
which led to the formation of general education public schools around London. She was a member of the London literary elite as a poet, playwright, author, philanthropist, and mentor to young women that has over 16 books to her name. These people were all part of one local church. And there were others that weren't connected to that local church, but from this, basically it was a country local church, and these people were all lawyers, politicians, statesmen, ambassadors. So it was kind of a, a high-end group of people that God had assembled that had the resources to tackle the significant social justices of their day. Richard Loveless in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Renewal, says that the members of this group would pray three hours at separate occasions every day. Specifically, for the elimination of these social evils within the providence of the United Kingdom's jurisdiction. Loveless goes on to say that the evidence indicates that when Christians are quiet and passive about either mores or issues of social justice, transformation does not occur. And what I want to look at today is elements of our activity. We've looked at prayer and we've looked at fasting. But if you look here at Nehemiah, verses 1 through 8 of the passage that, that was read this morning talks about Nehemiah's prayer. And we've talked about prayer and fasting. But there's after prayer comes planning and work. And so we need to see our task as praying, planning, and working. And so I want to look today at the planning and the working, because these are critical parts of what goes into efforts for us to experience renewal and for the world around us to experience renewal. It, it can't stop with just prayer and fasting. If you look at the book of Titus, and, and over the last several years, I've had a lot of opportunities to talk with pastors about um, our, our approach, our philosophy of ministry. And I just say, you know what, I just, I just see in the short little book of Titus the blueprint for how we are to engage ministry in this world. They preach the gospel, they establish leaders, they, they establish the community of faith in the teachings of the gospel so they know how to live as a family and then they know how to live as a church family. And then Titus calls the whole church that network of churches in Crete, Paul calls Titus to instruct them to meet the pressing needs that are existing in the world. It's simple. It's three or four points. And every time without failure, they look at me like, I've never thought of the book of Titus that way. Thank you. And they're taking notes the whole time. And it's not, it's nothing difficult to see. It's just, it's chapter three of the book of Titus. But one of the biggest weaknesses of conservative churches in our modern era is a lack of concern to meet social needs. Jesus did it. Jesus modeled it. And he called us to do it. He called us to do it. And it's got to be central to a church's efforts in the world. Not only for the world's sake, 
but for our sakes. Tim Keller says that we should have a vision and a heart and a love for the city, not just because the city needs us, but because we need the city. If we are not burdened by the needs of others around us, like Jesus was burdened for the needs of the world, if we're not burdened by the needs of those around us, there's nothing that's going to be motivating us to get outside of our comfortable lives. There's nothing that's going to be motivating us to give up the glory of our current position and put ourselves into the suffering of others, which is exactly what Jesus did. That's the mission. So we've got to be aware of these things. So we see here in Nehemiah, he saw the devastation that Jerusalem was in. And he didn't grow up there. We saw that he was shaped by the story of the Bible and by, the, by, by just meditation and understanding of what God's call was for Jerusalem and for Israel. And so we should understand what God's call is for people and for his world. It's not going to end here. There's going to be a new world, but we're called to extend the kingdom of God into this world now because the kingdom of God has come and Jesus is going to finalize the effort when he returns. But we're doing it while we're here. The darkness is passing away. And we saw that, that Nehemiah, in his, in his vision for what Jerusalem should be, he prayed and he fasted. He didn't sit in the comfort of his position as cupbearer. He prayed and he fasted for months, asking God to provide opportunity for him to do something about this situation. So he prayed, he fasted, and then he had an opportunity and he asked the king if he could go back and rebuild his city. So the first thing he did, he did, was he planned. <clears throat> he planned. He was ready to go when the king said, okay, you're looking sad today. Is there something I can do to help? Because I don't want somebody bringing me food and bringing me wine when I'm trying to celebrate and that person's sad. Why are you sad? And immediately on that request, Nehemiah knew what he wanted. Here's what I need, here's what I need, here's what I need. Would you send me back with letters so that I can go back without worrying about the locals thinking I'm rebelling? So he planned. And then when he got there, he didn't say, hey, I'm here to save you, everybody. In the quiet of night, he got a few people to help. He went around the entire area. And for a period of days, he put a plan together. And he was, when he was done with the plan, he's, then he went to the people and said, hey, everybody, here's what I've seen, here's what I've done, here's what the king is going to do for us, let's do the work. And then the rest of the book details the work. And it, 52 days later, they were done with the wall. They were done with the wall. So if we look at the work of planning... And the, and the work of working. I think we need to think of it in, in several ways. The first, we as individuals and as families need to think about where we as families in our familial life, in our neighborhood life, in our common life with the people of this world, and in our vocational life. Where has God put us what opportunities has he put us in in order to extend the kingdom of God into the world around us? 
Where can we meet needs? The efforts of this Clapham Church, it wasn't a plan that the pastoral staff put together. It was people that were in places to observe significant need in their world. And they said, hey, we've got to do something about this. Now, half, like half a dozen of them were members of parliament, okay? And so it's not, it, we're, I don't think, okay, I don't think that we're going to, to, to rise to the level of the status that Clapham Church did. But that's not what God is calling us to do. We're not in Washington, D.C. We're not in London. We're in Minneapolis. We're in St. Paul. We're in the Twin Cities. We're in the state of Minnesota. There are lots of needs here. Needs that we need to meet as a community, needs that we need to meet as individuals. In our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Loveless says that history has shown several viable strategies for lasting social change which have influenced men to bless the church and believe its message. The formation of volunteer societies dealing with individual social issues is one strategy. The responsible activity of Christian lay people in business and government is another. Your place of work, and when I say work, not just what you're paid for. Every single one of us works, whether we're paid or not. When we are raising children, we are working. When we are showing hospitality to neighbors, we are working. So we need to, we need to think as, as individuals, as households, as families, where is God calling us to? We, and we need to pray. What are the needs of the people around us? Where can we jump in and help? Where can we jump in and help? Where are there social, moral issues in the world that I live in? And that prayer will alert you and make you more sensitive to what those needs are. And then the work of planning begins to take place. So for us, for us as a family, that's been uh, the, the relationships and needs present within the performing arts at the high school that our kids go to. And that then is an avenue to a lot of the challenges that exist in public schools, race being a huge one. Minneapolis is about, about two-thirds white. Public schools of Minneapolis are one-third white and two-thirds minorities. There are huge racial disparities and issues within Minneapolis public schools that affects so many things. There is white flight leaving Minneapolis public schools. That was told me by the mayor of Minneapolis's advisor on education. Our work in the high school has brought attention to the mayor's office. The mayor has a desire to see Minneapolis flourish. 
And he knows that the schools are a significant challenge in the flourishing of Minneapolis and that many of the more affluent people in the city of Minneapolis are not sending their kids to public schools in Minneapolis, but are sending them elsewhere. And when you send your students elsewhere, if you live in Minneapolis, but you send your kids to a private school or charter school or one of the surrounding schools, the money follows. And guess what else is true? And I think this is federal law. The district that a student lives in, if they are in special needs, is responsible to pay for the special education of that student, even if they go to another school district. So if a special education student decides to go to, if the family decides to send that student, for whatever reason, I'm not saying they're not good reasons, if a student decides to go to, say, the school in Edina, but lives in Minneapolis, Minneapolis Public Schools still pays for the special education needs of that student that is going to Edina. And the funding goes to Edina as well, just the general, what, five or $6,000 a student. Anyway, you, you start getting into some of these things, the needs are a huge challenge. And so our group that supports the performing arts, the performing arts being a critical aspect of what keeps kids in school and motivated, the mayor came and spoke at our annual fundraising event a month ago and says, hey, I love what you guys are doing here. Is there a way that you can help the other high schools in the district do this? I'm president of this group. And so we met with the mayor's office, and we're starting to develop a little plan on what we could do to increase and strengthen the performing arts in the other public high schools in the city of Minneapolis. I don't know where this is going to go. I wasn't planning on meeting with the mayor's office. I just was asked to help by the choir director that taught Amanda and now teaches Alicia. Hey, will you guys help out with this group? So I was the secretary my first year. I just took notes at the meetings. That's what they needed, so they asked. I said, okay. The next year, they said, hey, we need, we need somebody to be the president. Can you do it? I was like, whoa. Let's have a few meetings, and let me pray about it. So I don't know where that's going to go. And it is just our meager efforts to help out. But the things we did as a family, we created a home that wanted to extend hospitality to the people that we were around, our neighbors, our friends and relationships through the schools. So that's what we've done. That's what we've done. And we need to do that as a church as well. Not just as individuals and as households, but as a church. Where can we meet these needs? And we've done this kind of thing. We put a lot of planning into the effort, that, that we, a lot of planning, a lot of thinking, a lot of research into what kind of church are we going to be? What is going to be our structure? And that led to, hey, we're going to do house churches because we need the family dynamic strong. That's really the missing piece in a lot of evangelical Christianity. But we've got to have those house churches unified for common efforts. So we're going to continue to do the Sunday morning thing as well. And we came up here, we started establishing people, teaching the gospel through booklets and sermons and whatever else and gathering, and then we started praying, God, what needs do you have in this place where we could meet? A year later, Seth and Gina Evans came into our lives. Twin Cities Ministries was birthed, and now there are 
three and a half homes providing transitional housing. Seth and a whole staff of people from this church that are working with Metro Hope, a 70-bed place to help people get their feet grounded, men and women, some with kids, with a healing house, established in the gospel, with dreams and visions to grow broader. So those are plans that God has strengthened us to create to meet needs as a church. But that's, I don't think that that's all. I don't think that that's all. That's where we've come from. Those are some plans that we had in place. Those are some things that are being worked out. So what do I see in terms of how should we be planning? How should we be planning? How should we be working for the future? If you're not familiar, Twin Cities Ministries is a society, to use that language. It's a nonprofit organization that we started in 2011 for the express purpose of addressing a whole number of issues. <clears throat> Substance abuse, crime, housing, incarceration, recidivism, race, fatherhood, family. All wrapped up kind of in this incarceration, crime, substance abuse context. So we started that ministry for that effort. We've got, like I said, I think three and a half homes. We have a home that Twin Cities Ministries owns. Seth and Gina own two homes, and they're trying to develop a model so that if people buy a house, Twin Cities Ministries will lease it from them. They can make some return because there's, it's, it's an investment, but it's also earning income, and an asset is being developed. We're trying to, we're trying to create a model so that people can give and help and not just always be giving all of the stuff that they have away. We, we got, we're trying to create a model so that there's like investment and return and giving back and so that it's kind of a more sustainable long-term model. Can you imagine in 200 years, 200 years, if we just kept at this work for 200 years, let's just say 50 years, how many transition homes could we be providing in the, in the Twin Cities? We've been at it for eight years. Could we have 100 homes, 200 homes, providing housing for hundreds, if not thousands, at any one time? That would be pretty amazing for a small network of local churches to be a part of. We have three and a half, because we lease Luke Rustad's duplex. And we have capacity for three more. The South St. Paul and the West Side House churches, hopefully they're going to see one emerge here in the next few months. Some plans are in place and some, some financing is in place, and they're looking for a spot. I think we could put one in Northeast Minneapolis. We've got three house churches there. I think we could put one in, in the Como and North St. Paul suburbs. I think we've got capacity for three more at this point. How many more could we do in the years to come? We need to be thinking and praying about God resourcing us, growing us, helping us find the homes, praying for the people in need, praying for crime and substance abuse and racial tension. Because we need to be praying for these things on a regular basis. 
We need to be praying for starting new house churches and house churches in places in the neighborhoods around the Twin Cities where there's substantial need. I think we're close to seeing a house church start in North Minneapolis, something I've been praying for for years. Marshall Terrace House Church is just across the river, and they've got a family in their house church that live in North Minneapolis. I don't know if the halls are here. Are the halls here this morning? There they are. You know you guys are going to have to host a house church in North Minneapolis <laughs> sometime. I have been burdened since we moved up here. We had some initial plans and works that we started. It was a forum that would address questions in our culture that non-Christians had about Christianity. And we started an effort about 10 years ago and it just kind of flopped. But it's never left my mind and I would really like to do something like that in the next one or two years. We live in an increasingly secularized world and there are good responses to questions that people have about Jesus, about Christianity, about science, about history, about whether it's valid or not, about whether it's reliable or about whether it's reasonable. And, and we need to be able to articulate. It's going to take some research. It's going to take some time. It's going to take some planning. But I'm, I have a really strong desire to do this. There's a lot of opportunity. And the obstacles, while great, aren't too great. Jesus rose from the dead, never to die again. And Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 1 that we would realize in the eyes of our hearts. So the eyes of our hearts means that, that our passions and our wills and desires would see clearly enough to know and comprehend so that they are moved our affections are moved. That's what it, when Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your hearts would see. One of those things he prays for in Ephesians chapter 1 is that we would see the power of God that is working toward us and through us, which is the same power that he used when he raised Jesus from the dead through the Holy Spirit. If we believe that that same power is at work in us, through us, toward us, then nothing that we see in the world in terms of social evils is too big of a challenge because none of them rise to the level of raising a dead man from the grave, never to die again, and then sending that man into heaven. And so we have substantial needs. We have substantial opportunity because we have the spirit and the kingdom and the vision. What we need to do is pray and plan and work. Now, I better conclude here. We can have a number of motivations that push us to do this stuff. We can have guilt and shame. If, you, if, if, by, if, if through guilt and shame you're moved to pray and to plan and to work, it's not going to last. If you're doing it to overcome guilt and shame, like you're feeling bad about maybe not being a very generous person, you're feeling bad about being selfish, or you're just feeling bad in general and say, hey, if I do this good thing, I'll start feeling good about myself. It's not going to last. I'm not saying not to do it. 
because oftentimes our efforts to do good bring on more guilt and shame, and we finally get to the point where we're like, okay, I finally, uh, all right, I'll let Jesus, I will put it all on the cross of Christ, recognizing that I can't do it. So guilt and shame is just going to wear you out. Quit trying to engage in good works to make yourself feel better. It is exhausting. The gospel is not do good so God loves you. The gospel is God loves you. He's given his son for you. And that love should overwhelm you so much that you're willing to give your life for it. That's the gospel. And that's why we need, we, our, the eyes of our hearts need to be open to that. But we fight, we fight, we fight because we, we just want to be able to say, I'm a good person. The gospel says that you're not a good person. <laughs> the gospel says that you are a bad person. Worse than you could even be imagining or feeling. But that you're also more loved and, and, and more wondrously made than it is beyond your capacity to understand and know as well. So you are wretched, but you are loved. And it is the love of God that triumphs over the judgment of God. And recognizing that love is then what motivates us. If you want to make a name for yourself by doing good, it's the same thing. You're still going to be using others to make yourself feel better. And those people then become slaves to your good name. They become enslaved to your efforts to justify yourself, and you will end up abusing them. You will use them. And what happens, and you guys probably know people like this. I, in my flesh, this is the kind of person I am. They engage in good, but when you sit down and you talk to them about it, all they can talk about is themselves. And if you get into volunteer work, these kind of people really are everywhere. It's like, are you in this for yourself or are you in this for the people that you're trying to serve? Because you just talk about yourself so much and all the good things that you do. And you try to impress. And you know what? They just, they never really become that effective because their motivations become pretty clear. Now, the only motivation that we can engage in this, if you're not compelled out of joy and compassion and love for God and love for people to engage in good, but you want to be. Start down the path and you'll get there. Probably everybody in this room senses some obligation to engage in good. Start down the path. Start down the path. And if you're not, if if you don't have the feelings, I would encourage you to do this. Start down the path and begin praying and asking for God to give you eyes in your hearts that would comprehend the gospel in such a way that would move you from guilt or shame-driven or personal ambition-driven works to works of love and compassion. Because works of love and compassion energize. They don't exhaust. They give you strength. They don't weaken. And they give you the ability and the energy to just keep doing more. And then... What God does is he resources the people and the churches that are engaged in that kind of work. These people never 
They never ran out of the resources needed to accomplish the purposes that God had for them. We will never run out of the resources that we need to accomplish the purpose that God has for us. You know when Paul prays in Philippians for the needs of the church there, he says, I pray that God would provide your needs according to the riches in glory in Christ. Those are riches that are inexhaustible. God is calling us to pray, to plan, and to work with joy, with love and compassion because it's what Jesus did. Let me pray.